We're in uh, Luke chapter 5 today. We're going to be looking at verses 27 uh, all the way through chapter 6, verse 11. And we're going to be talking today about conflicting expectations, conflicting expectations. Jesus is continually encountering resistance from the religious leaders of the day. They're taking issue with everything that he does, and they have both expectations for him and his disciples as to how they should live and minister, and they make those expectations known. So Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, Dr. Luke says, Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi, also known as Matthew, standing at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as his guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think that they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners and need to repent. One day, some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Jesus responded, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they, then they will fast. Then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of, piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment will be ruined, and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. But no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. Chapter 6. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples broke off heads of grain, rubbed off the husks in their hands, and ate the grain. But some Pharisees said, why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus replied, haven't you read the scriptures, what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests can eat. He gave some to his companions. And Jesus added, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. On another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. So the man came forward, and then Jesus said to his critics, I have a question for you. Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save or destroy life? He looked around at them, and one by one, looked at them one by one, and then said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. At this, the enemies of Jesus were wild with rage and began to discuss what to do with him. Such a sad passage that so much good can be happening, and yet all the critics see is the negative. 
All they see is what they can find fault with, which is so often the case. And the question today is, have, have you ever encountered criticism? <laughs> sure you have. Expectations that seemed unreasonable. Have there ever been times where you felt like everyone was always watching everything that you did, and they weren't watching to encourage you or to support you, but watching to find fault? So often is the case. And Jesus models so beautifully and gracefully for us of how we can learn from his example. I think if any one of us had been in the Lord's shoes, we would have said early on, get lost, you know, go find a real problem. You know, as leaders of, of, of the Jewish people, go, go tend to some real needs and, and stop, you know, fault finding and nitpicking. But Jesus, as I said, models so gracefully and, and offers um, some valuable lessons for us. And I, I want to say that um, I see three things in our text today that, that we can learn from. And the first thing, if you're taking notes in your outline, has to do with the company that we keep. I believe verses 27 to 32 address the company that we keep. Levi, or also known as Matthew, was sitting in a tax collector booth collecting money, and Jesus said, follow me. And he left everything. And we just read that, how James and John and Peter were fishing and had that miraculous catch of fish a few weeks ago, that two boats were filled to the point of sinking, the nets were torn, and when they hauled that to shore, they left everything and followed Jesus. And since it was fish, we think, okay, well, it's just fish, but that was their livelihood. And, and I had said to you at the time, imagine that you had the best day at work that you've ever had, you know, financially, uh, prosperity-wise, and something happened where you just left it all behind. Well, that's accentuated here where Matthew's sitting in a tax collector booth, he's got all these funds, all this money, and Jesus, by virtue of his authority and his presence, we don't know of any prior encounter that Matthew had had with Jesus, and Jesus says, follow me, and he leaves it all behind. Quite something. And then one of the very first things that he does is he invites Jesus to a feast at his home where he's also invited all of his tax-gatherer friends and all of their questionable associations as well. Because he's so excited about the new life that he's found in Jesus. And it, it got me thinking this week, if nobody has a problem with the company that we keep, perhaps the company that we keep is too safe or too conventional. If no one ever takes issue with the people that you associate with, perhaps the people that you and I associate with are too safe or too conventional. And I am not for a moment condoning just hanging out with the riffraff all the time, especially if they start rubbing off on you more than you rub off on them. If we struggle in certain areas and hanging out with people isn't healthy for us, I get that. But that statistic that we've all heard many times is that it's something like a year and a half to two years after finding the Lord, most Christian people don't have any non-Christian friends. They, they hang out exclusively with believers. And there's something to be said about fellowship and encouragement in the Lord, but what strikes me about Matthew is his connectedness with people who are lost, with people that were in need of a physician of a doctor. And Jesus models for us what it means to spend 
a lot of, a lot of time with, with questionable people. And he says in our passage, again, it is not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but rather sinners to repentance. We are seldom good judges as to who is healthy and who is sick, who is righteous and who's a sinner, because we're all flawed. We all have a skewed perspective. We all come from a subjective point of view. But this passage challenges the company that we keep. Secondly, I believe in verses 33 to 39, this passage challenges our personal practices and disciplines. Our personal practices and disciplines. The disciples of John the Baptist in the Gospel of Matthew, whenever I say parallel passage, what I mean by that is the same story that we're reading told in the other Gospels. And Matthew and Mark also tell the same story that we're, that we're reading today. And so in those parallel passages... It's the disciples of John the Baptist who come to Jesus and say, you know, the disciples of the Pharisees and, and we as disciples of John, we fast and pray, but your disciples are partying all the time, man. They're just eating and drinking all the time. What's up with that? Have you ever noticed that it's the people that are denying themselves of something that really take issue with the people that are enjoying that? And it speaks to the fact that they miss that. They want that. That is still very attractive to them. You know, the, the, God hastes the day in our Christian life when we can come to the point of maturity where we can give things up and not be like lustfully looking over our shoulder at other people who are enjoying the very things that we've denied ourselves of. But these disciples come and they say, what, what's up with this? Why are they enjoying this? And it's interesting when you look at the Old Testament that fasting was only prescribed for one day out of the whole year. God only commanded that one day out of the year that his people fast. And yet by New Testament times, the Pharisees had elevated it to practicing that at least twice a week. And so you have a, a difference between the, the customs and the, the practices of man and the command of God. And there was a huge disconnect there. And Jesus' response was that the new way, his way, and the old way, the way of John and the Pharisees, simply did not mix and he gives these three examples. The first is of the bridegroom and, and the, the wedding guests. Like, you don't go to a wedding feast and start thinking, okay, this is the day where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be on Jenny Craig, you know? I'm going to start doing my Weight Watchers points today, you know? You, you join into the celebration. You, you, you enter into the joy that everyone else is experiencing. The same with a, a, a new piece of cloth. You don't rip a new garment and take a piece of a new garment and sew it to an old one because it doesn't match, it stands out, and once you wash it, it's going to tear away. And then the new wine and the old, you don't put new wine into old wineskins because once it ferment, ferments, it tears the skins. And so Jesus is saying, here's three examples of things that don't mix, that are incompatible. And he was really highlighting the fact that his ministry that he was ushering in was incompatible with the old way of Judaism. He didn't come to patch up Judaism, but he came to bring in something new. And as I got thinking about personal practices and disciplines this week, you know, be it prayer, be it fasting, be it solitude, whatever personal disciplines that we practice, do we do these things to be noticed by other people? 
to receive recognition or validation? Or are these things that we do in privacy, just between us and God? We, we read so often in the New Testament where the, the Pharisees were blowing trumpets and wearing colorful garments, all to indicate that they were you know, in the midst of certain disciplines so that they could be recognized and lifted up. And, and, and Jesus was, was sick of that just because it was all about personal attention. And he said many places, you know, whatever you do in secret as unto the Lord, your reward will also be one day before your Father. But those who are seeking a reward, right, you have your reward, you know? That, that means nothing to God when you're just seeking the recognition of your peers right now. And he spoke out against that. I've learned that over the years of, of, of ministry that other people's expectations often reveal a lot about them and the things that they struggle with. You know, someone who's struggling with lust and pornography is so quick to render judgment on another that they feel has crossed a moral line. Someone who's denying themselves of certain foods or pleasures is quick to criticize another who freely enjoys those things. Someone who's trying to live within a strict budget is very resentful of someone else who just seems to spend freely. And the point is not that we that we can't hold others accountable or that we aren't called to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron, but we have to remember that we are not the Holy Spirit, you know? And it's so easy for us to think that because God is working on certain things in my life, He's working on the same things in everyone else. And so if it's a huge issue to me, it ought to be a huge issue to everybody else. And, and Granted, all sin issues are huge. I'm not lightening sin. But I'm just saying so often we get focused upon things because those issues are our issue. And the thing that we tend to be the, we tend to extend the least amount of grace is something that is a huge struggle in our own life. I've seen that time and time again in ministry. When someone is just over the top critical or judgmental, it's because that's a trigger in their own life. And oh, that we could be living out the grace of God in those situations. It's interesting that twice in this story, as Matthew records it, Jesus says this. In Matthew chapter 9, he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then at the end of this passage, after he tells these stories, he says this in Matthew 12. If you had known what this means, that I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. You know, in the Old Testament, we have that story where, where Saul thinks that it's better to offer a sacrifice than to be obedient. And Samuel issues that, that famous proclamation, to obey is better than sacrifice. And we always think of sacrifice in terms of a, a burnt offering to the Lord, but Jesus is using it here in terms of things that we give up. And he's saying, you know, you give up all these things like food and your fasting or your hours and hours of praying, and yet you're lashing out at those around you. And, and that nauseates me. You know, I'd rather have you not fast or pray and, and deal with compassion and love and mercy and grace toward those around you. Huge statement. Well, the third thing that I see being addressed here is the the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. In chapter 6, 1 to 11, the disciples eating grain on the Sabbath and Jesus 
healing the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. The Old Testament, specifically in Deuteronomy 23, permitted the Jews to eat on the Sabbath, uh, to pick grain in the field. They just couldn't use a sickle. And yet, the Pharisees' strict interpretation of the law uh, saw them, saw, caused them to see the disciples as, as really violating the law. There were four types of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath. One was reaping, another was threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. And technically, the disciples had broken every one of them, according to the Pharisees, because by plucking the corn, they were guilty of reaping. By rubbing it in their hands, they were guilty of threshing. By flinging away the husks, they were guilty of winnowing. And by eating it, they were violating eating prepared food. And so, they had an issue with all of these things. They were just nitpicking. And Jesus doesn't argue with them, but he, he points them to Scripture. He points them to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I think it's masterful of Jesus. Just We saw this when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Every single time he responded by quoting Scripture. Didn't get into a philosophy argument or you know moral this or that. He just pointed to Scripture. And he takes the Pharisees to 1 Samuel 21, which is the story of when David and his companions were going through a, a wilderness area and they became very hungry that they entered into the tabernacle and ate the showbread. There were 12 loaves called the showbread. They standed and represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were on the altar in the tabernacle, which was the tent that traveled with the Jews as they were wandering. And then in the temple, uh, when that was erected, the, the loaves were put there. And fresh bread was put out on every Sabbath, and only the priests could eat that. And yet David and his companions violated this law because of their need and their urgency. And Jesus is saying no one had an issue with that, including the priests, because David as king was the Lord's anointed. And the parallel here is Jesus is saying, I am God's anointed. And when my disciples, you know, take grain out of the field in their hunger, you know, let's look at the, the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. There's another hidden parallel implicit in Jesus' teaching. Just as much as David was, was fighting a dying dynasty that was hounding him at every turn, namely the dynasty of King Saul, Jesus is fighting off a dying dynasty of Judaism in priests and religious leaders who don't even know what it means to lead his people anymore, who are not leading people to God's presence, but they're leading people into legalism and into judging one another. Well, in the case of the withered band, Jesus, uh, the man with the withered hand, uh, Jesus asks this question in verse 9, chapter 6, which ends up silencing his critics. He says, does the law permit doing good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life or to destroy it? And by asking this question, he's getting his audience to understand that if someone chooses to ignore suffering, they are actually contributing to the evil of the sufferer by doing nothing. Refusing to do good on the Sabbath was the same as doing evil. It's kind of like what James says in, in his book in chapter 4, verse 17. 
For the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for them it is sin. And that's why we see David in the Psalms, he's asking forgiveness of the sins that he's aware of, that he's committed, and then he also asks forgiveness for what he calls sins of omission. And those are things that he should have done, that he knew he should have done, but that he failed to do. And and both of those are are things that, that we need to bring before the Lord. Throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus representing and demonstrating both the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. In terms of the letter of the law, we often see Jesus holding those who thought that they were righteous and had no need for repentance or forgiveness or salvation. He held those people, namely the religious leaders, to the letter of the law. And he blasts them in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. He says, you've heard it said from our ancestors that you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say to you, even if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. That's the letter of the law. And Jesus held the religious leaders to that letter of the law. He says again in Matthew 5, verse 27, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's the letter of the law. And then finally, in that same passage, he says in verse 31, you've heard that the law says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Letter of the law. But then we see Jesus offering extreme grace, the spirit of the law, in so many different instances in the New Testament as well. We see that in the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. You know, these people bring her, she's caught in the very act of adultery. So she's probably unclothed. She's shamed and humiliated. And you know the story, you know. All these people are standing around her. And the person she's committed adultery with isn't there, you know, which shows the bias toward this woman. She's an easy target. Then Jesus stands up after he's been writing in the dust, and, and commentators and theologians think that he's, he's writing the sins, or we don't know what it is, but speculation is that he's writing the sins of those accusers around this woman in the dust. And one by one, as they see Jesus calling them out, they, they flee. They go away. And finally, Jesus stands up and he says to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And she says, no, my Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. So Jesus does not condone her behavior, but he he extends extreme grace in a situation where the law called for judgment and even stoning. That woman was guilty and and rightfully should have been stoned to death according to the law. But we see Jesus exercising extreme grace. We see that also in Luke 7, where the immoral woman comes and falls at his feet and begins anointing his feet at the home of Simon the Pharisee. And Jesus uses her as an example to teach the religious leaders around him. But he says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. 
And that's why she has demonstrated such love. But a person who has forgiven little shows little love. Then he turned to the woman and said, your sins are forgiven. He was using her as a model of someone who understood their need for him. And as opposed to all the leaders around who felt no need for God or for righteousness. And then here in our passage, Jesus teaches that healing someone and doing good is more important than strict observance of the Sabbath. How how picky of the Pharisees to consider rubbing grain between fingers as, as reaping and threshing and all of that stuff. The letter of the law. In the same passage in Mark's gospel, Jesus declares that the Sabbath wasn't made for man, but yeah, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then in Matthew's passage, in chapter 12 of Matthew, he says to the people that were in the synagogue at the time, he said, any of you that might have a lamb that would wander off from the fold and fall in a ditch on the Sabbath, which one of you isn't going to go fetch that lamb out of the ditch? But how hypocritical that if there's a man like this man with a withered hand who is made in the image of God, you're not willing to extend mercy and healing to him even though it's the Sabbath? That's inconsistent. And he draws them out on their hypocrisy. Scribes and the Pharisees had turned God's word and God's laws into heavy burdens that the people couldn't bear. I want to draw some application today. And, you know, in... in Chapter 6, verse 3, when Jesus says to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, have you never read what David did when he was with... The point was, of course they had. They had not only read that, they probably had it committed to memory. And the question is, how could they read God's Word, study God's Word, memorize God's Word, and miss the whole point? They could have passed tests on different sections of Scripture. They, They knew it inside and out. But the point is, how do they miss the main point? And how is it that you and I can sometimes miss the main point when we go to Scripture? And I think one reason is because we don't come to Scripture with an open heart and an open mind. We come to Scripture with our mind already made up. The Pharisees came to Scripture looking for proof texts that they might use to throw at other people and and get them in trouble or to point out their flaws or their, their sins. They didn't come to Scripture with an open mind. They took their theology of the Bible instead of finding their theology in the Bible. The model of Scripture is not, listen, Lord, for thy servant is speaking. The model is what Eli told to Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. But how often we come... You know, God, I've already made up my mind. Would you please validate and affirm? You throw, give me a scripture that I can use to throw at this person or to use against this person. And we're playing God instead of allowing God to speak to us. And how essential it is that we always come to scripture with an open mind and an open heart. It's what I talked about last week with the, with what one theologian called the, the second naivete, that we don't come to scripture saying, oh yeah, I, I know what this is all about. I've read this. I've heard someone preach on this, and it's this, this, and this point, but that we allow ourselves to always see the text through a new lens and through new eyes and through new ears, allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to us. 
A second thing is that I think we can miss the truth of Scripture if we don't come to Scripture with a needy heart. If we don't come to Scripture realizing that we are sinners in need of God's help. It's not that, oh, now we're Christians and God's cleaned us up and we're all good and we have no needs. No. The Apostle Paul said, I'm the chief of all sinners. You know? When he, when he talked to his audience, he said, you know, he talked about all the sinful people and all their sinful practices, and then he said, and such were some of you. The day that we forget that we're sinners saved by God's grace is the day that we're in trouble. We always need to come to Scripture with understanding our need, because when we understand our need, then the Scripture comes alive, and, and, and God makes sense. A, a Messiah, a Savior who comes to help us in our need makes a lot of sense. But the Pharisees didn't have that need because they saw the law as a game, a game that they could play better than everyone else. And it wasn't about their righteousness before the Lord, it was about they were more righteous than everyone around them. This is a game that they could play and win every time. They could make other people feel small and unworthy while they just kind of wallowed in their self-righteousness. And God was sick of that. I read a story this week uh, from a book called Blink. Blink is written by Malcolm Gladwell. Many of you have heard of him. He's an amazing author. And it's a book about the power of thinking without thinking. And it looks at choices <clears throat> that are made in an instant uh, as not being as simple as they might seem. And he gives many examples in this book. Uh, and one such story that he shares is about how the classical music world realized that their system of auditioning uh, new musicians for a place in the symphony was flawed. Uh, they believed that their first impressions of listening to someone play an instrument were unbiased, but they were quickly proven wrong. Um, once screens were raised between the judges and the individuals who were auditioning. Uh, and because of this, in the last 30 years, with the screens in place, the number of women in the top positions in the U.S. orchestra has increased fivefold. Instrumentalists who had previously been eliminated from consideration were now accepted. When factors like outward appearance and unconscious prejudice were removed, only pure ability was considered. And Gladwell shares the story of a female instrumentalist named Julie Landsman. So Julie Landsman auditioned for the role of Principal French Horn at the Metropolitan. The screens had just gone up in the practice hall. At the time, there were no women in the brass section of the orchestra because everyone just assumed that women couldn't play the horn as well as men. But Landsman came and sat down and played, and she played well. She said, I knew my last in my last round that I had won before they even told me, she says. It was because of the way I performed the last piece. I held on to that last high C note for a very, very long time, just to leave no doubt in their minds. And they started to laugh, because it was above and beyond the call of duty. When they declared her the winner, and she stepped out from behind the screen, there was a gasp. And it wasn't just because she was a woman. And it wasn't just because she had held that high C which was the kind of macho that they expected from a man only. But it was because they knew her. Landsman had played for the Met for years as a substitute. 
until they listened to her with just their ears. However, they had no idea how good she was. And I thought, you know, that is so true relationally when we think we have people all figured out, when, when we put people in boxes and we label them and we come to every situation with preconceived notions and ideas. And I thought, you know, as I read that this week, I thought, oh, that the Holy Spirit would be that divine filter for us where we see people without bias and without prejudice and without manipul manipulative motivation, um, not as a means to an end, without all the baggage that we bring to situations that we could only see people for who they are, that, that we could see sinners of which we are a part, not as criminals to be condemned and judged, but of those needing grace and mercy, that we could see those who make mistakes, again, which is all of us, as, as people who are in need of love and grace and to be pointed in the right direction, not people that uh, the greatest need is to be you know, criticized and condemned and put in their place. And Jesus opens that up today. You know, it, it's interesting to me that, yes, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came for sinners and for sick people that knew that they needed a doctor. But he didn't just save people like this. How amazing that Jesus called someone like Matthew to be on his leadership team. He called him to be part of his inner circle. And I think one of the reasons why Jesus called Matthew is because Matthew was connected with other people that were in need. You know, and I think some of the reasons why churches struggle with outreach in terms of reaching their community is because of how disconnected we are from people who are in need. Not that we don't have needs too, God knows we do, but most of us are mainly connected with people who already know the Lord. And the question is, how much time are we spending with people that don't know him? And, and Matthew represented that, and Jesus knew, man, if, if I call Matthew to my my team, you know, he's going to bring a lot of people with him. And there's something to be said about that. Managing expectations. Everybody has them. Everybody has their own opinions of how other people should act. And Jesus models for us the heart of the Father. You know, try showing compassion rather than sacrifice. Let's pray.